I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Good morning, ladies. Okay, Shavua Tov to everybody. I hope you had a great Shabbos. So we're going to continue with our study of the Shema. We are almost uh, ending the first paragraph of the Shema. And just um, something I came across, a uh, sad story, but very common one throughout Jewish history of persecution. So this is a piece that was written by a rabbi, Avraham Siba, who wrote about the... Um, Iberian Jews who were forced into exile during the expulsion from Portugal in 1492. And he says, the Torah considered the future, the suffering and the evil which would be decreed against Israel, forcing them to abandon their religion and to abstain from the study of Torah. This is what happened in the expulsion from Portugal when it was forbidden to preach publicly and to teach children Torah. All books and synagogues were taken away so that we would neither pray nor teach our children. As a result, Torah was all but forgotten by Jews. For how can we teach our children without books or teachers? Nothing was left to us save to teach them the Shema, that the Lord is one and that one ought to love him and be prepared to die for him in martyrdom. Therefore, God gave Israel for such times as these, this short passage of the Shema, which actually contains the essence of the whole of Torah. And if they don't know the entire passage, at least they'll know the verse, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, which contains in the main, the belief of the unity of God. So we can teach our children that he is one and he is all powerful. And if villains should come to coerce them to forsake their God, they should learn to offer up their lives for him and die in martyrdom. This is what is meant by the commandment to love him with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. We've been talking about the first paragraph of the Shema, which really is all about, number one, the idea of loving Hashem. And number two, about accepting the yoke of Hashem upon us, right? The word Shema, we said backwards, stands for Ol Malchut Shemayim, the yoke of the kingdom of heaven, which basically just means that we accept our mission in this world of spreading the message of monotheism and of morality and of the Torah's teachings. And we teach them to our children so that they continue on and on after us. So we, I actually came across the idea that we said that it's important to have kavana, to have intention when you're saying this prayer. Otherwise, there's a, there's a, uh, you know, there's a concept that you didn't really say it if you didn't say at least the first few lines with intention. And these lines continue up until Asher Anochim Hayom Al So they start with the Shema Israel. And then they that you should love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these things that I teach you today should be upon your heart. 
So it's up until there that we're supposed to try to have as much kavana as we can. And then we begin what we talked about last week, Vishinantam Livanacha. You should teach it to your children, the Dibarta Bam, and you should speak about them. And we said the word Bam, bam is an acronym telling us that you should teach them the whole Torah, beginning with Bereshi in the word Bam, through Me'emasai, which is the first word in the oral Torah, starting with the Mishnah. So you should speak about them. And then we spoke about the idea that Torah has to be your primary occupation. It has to be the most important thing in your life. And everything else is secondary. And this is what your children have to understand as well, that for you as a Jew, there's nothing more important than Torah. And everything else is secondary. What kind of career you're going to have, what kind of wealth you're going to have, you know, how hard you're going to work, how much time you're going to give to other things. But primary occupation in this world for a Jew is Torah, the study of Torah, uh, the learning of Torah, and even speaking about it, as it says, uh, when you're sitting in your house, when you're going on your way, when you're lying down and you're getting up. So here too, it's just saying that, you know, a lot of Jews live their life that in shul, that's where I'm Jewish, right? Or like the German said to the German Jews pre-Holocaust, you know, be a, be a German in the street and be a Jew in your house. That was the beginning of the reform movement, this motto, right? It went on to say that Berlin is our new Jerusalem. This is how far people got from the Shema Yisrael, from the idea that being a Jew is all-encompassing. It's not only when you're in shul. It's not only when you're at a Hadassah meeting. Being a Jew is always, it's like we said in other classes, it's being God-obsessed. It's every moment of your life, whether you're walking on the way, whether you're lying in bed, whether you're getting up, you're always being, um, everything that you do is being framed by What does Hashem want from me right now? How can I get closer to Hashem? How can I develop this connection? Not only that, recognizing that you're a walking billboard. As a Jew, you're a walking billboard for Hashem. The way you behave, the way you act in public, people are always either saying, wow, what a people. There must be a God in this world because look at how the people of God behave. Or unfortunately, the opposite right? Gee, if these are God's people, well, I'm off the hook, that's for sure. And of course, there's plenty of Jews who say that, right? If they meet a observant Jew who is supposedly uh, following and living their life according to the Torah, and they don't behave properly. So, you know, it's an excuse to say, well, listen, if, that, if those are the people who are keeping Torah, and that's the way they behave, well, I'm off the hook, because I, you know, they're obviously, there's obviously nothing special about that. So again, this idea that everything about what we do, where we go, what we think is all about this God obsession of asking all the time, you know, Hashem is watching me. What does he want from me right now? How can I live my life in accordance with the Torah? So I just an idea here too that I wanted to just bring out because we've talked about it in other times. 
that, you know, we talked about different ways that you can love Hashem. So the Rambam says you love Hashem by looking around you at the world and you study, right? You study the world, cosmology, biology, zoology, right? All of the ologies. Hi, good morning. Sorry, I didn't mute. Hold on. Good. I'm glad somebody's having a good morning. You can unmute if you have something you want to ask or say. So the Rambam said, you look around you at the world and you cannot but love Hashem. Because if you understand there's a creator who created all of this with incredible hachma and incredible chesed, then it will make you come to love Hashem. Knowing the creator makes you love the creator. So the more knowledge through the mind that you develop. Okay, but the other thing that we said really is that the way to come to love of Hashem is by learning his Torah. Because when you learn his Torah, Hashivenu Avinu Torah Techa, you really become, you become changed by it, right? If we would say that, Hash, that the Torah is basically Hashem's mind, right? It's, it's being able to peek into the mind of this infinite being who somehow, you know, uh, compressed himself into the Torah as a way of being able to connect to humanity, to his creation. And when you study Torah, you are involved in being able to go into the mind of Hashem, so to speak. So Torah study is one of the most incredible ways to become infatuated and in love with Hashem. And this is what we're doing right now, ladies. We're learning Torah. But I want to read to you from Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, in his book, uh, Derech Hashem, The Way of Hashem, another one of his classics, he wrote The Path of the Just, Mesilas Yesharim. He died at a very young age. He delved very deeply into Kabbalah. Very interesting life. You can listen to, about him if you like. There's a Dr. Henry Abramson, who's a close friend of ours. He lived with us in Binghamton. He gives such great history classes. They're funny. They're very, very clear. I'm giving him a plug. He's the Dean of Turo College right now. He grew up in Iroquois Falls, a Jewish population, one family, an only child. He is a brilliant uh, professor. And like I said, he was a professor at Cornell University in Jewish history when we were living in Binghamton. So they lived in Binghamton with us because it was the closest to Ithaca with the Jewish community. Check him out, Dr. Henry Abramson. You'll really enjoy him. He also gives uh, tours, riverboat tours, and all kinds of exotic places in the world. So if you ever get an opportunity, I'm sure he's fantastic to be on a trip with. Okay, so he, he has a class on the Ramchal, Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, if you want to hear more about him. Anyway, Rav Moshe talks about Torah, and he says... God granted us one particular means which can bring man close to God more than anything else. This is the study of his revealed Torah. Such study accomplishes this in two ways. First, through the reading of the Torah, and secondly, through its comprehension. So even just reading the Torah without comprehending it, he says, has an effect on a person. In his love, God composed a volume of words decreed by his wisdom and bestowed it upon us. 
This is the Torah and later works of the prophets, making up the Bible as we know it. These words have the unique property of causing one who reads them to incorporate in himself the highest excellence and greatest perfection. So again, when a person studies and learns Torah, it's not like learning mathematics. It's not like learning physics. It's not like learning something, although there are people who learn Torah as an academic exercise. When we lived in Binghamton, actually, there were a lot of professors in SUNY Binghamton who belonged to our synagogue, who taught Talmud in an academic setting. And unfortunately, some of them were not the greatest believers in what they were teaching. They simply enjoyed the academic gymnastics of learning it or studying it, let's say, and getting their PhD in it, you know, squared. And being in academia as, you know, and it just happens that they teach Talmud. So this is why this next line is so important. He says, these words have the unique opportunity of causing one who reads them to incorporate in himself the highest excellence and greatest perfection. However, the only condition is that they be read with holiness and purity, with the proper intent of fulfilling God's will. Through all these acts of learning the Torah, man not only earns excellence and perfection for himself, but he also elevates and perfects the entire fabric of creation. This is particularly true, not, of, not just of all the mitzvahs, but especially in the case of the study of Torah. For those of you who read the morning blessings every morning, you know that we read, Elu Devarim She'adam Ohel Perotehem Ba'olam Azeh. Let me just get it here. We read brachas on the Torah. We're not allowed to study the Torah according to halacha before we say these blessings over the Torah, which give us permission to study the Torah. But one of the interesting things that we say is that if you put all the mitzvahs on one side of the scale, and the mitzvahs that they mention are honoring your parents, acts of kindness, going to shul early in the morning, getting there on time in the evening, hospitality to guests, visiting the sick, providing for a bride, escorting the dead, absorption in prayer, bringing peace between man and his fellow man, you put all of that on one side of the scale, and then you put the study of Torah on the other, and it says the study of Torah is equal to all of these, okay? So if someone is studying Torah and he's interrupted because there's somebody drowning in the ocean behind him, right? And he could save a life. There's actually an entire Gomorrah that discusses whether he's allowed to get up from his learning to go and save a life because He's saving the whole world by sitting and learning, right? We said last week, he's keeping the world spinning around. You know, he's got a huge obligation. He's got, what's that a Greek uh, guy who has the earth sitting on his shoulders? I can't remember. Atlas? Atlas, thanks. So, you know, every Jew's got like Atlas, right? And so it's not a simple question in the Gemara, whether he's allowed to get up. Now, you'll be happy to know the answer is he does get up. and He does have to save the life because, of course, saving life is the most important thing in Judaism, but he's considered a bit of a loser that it had to happen outside his window, okay? 
and not some other guy who was further away in the base medrash and had no idea somebody was drowning. In other words, why did God want his Torah interrupted? Maybe he wasn't learning the way he was supposed to be. Maybe he was daydreaming. Maybe he wasn't, right? Maybe he spent too long at the coffee urn that day making his coffee. Who knows what it is, right? Because anyway, the point is, is that the learning of Torah is what the Shema is talking about in terms of it being the most um, intense way of coming to love of Hashem. And of course, without learning, we don't know what to do. So, you know, even practically learning in order to know what to do is important for everybody. But of course, people who go into the more esoteric learnings of Torah, it's just because learning Torah metamorphosizes a person. It changes you. I remember that, uh, I don't know, there's some story about some great mathematician and he was very immoral. And one of his students said, you know, how can, or maybe he was, a, he was a philosopher, I'm sorry, some great secular philosopher. And he didn't live a moral life and everybody knew this about him. And one of the students said to him, I don't understand, you teach all of this, all of this information that assumes morality and yet you live a completely different life. And he said, listen, if I was a mathematician and I was teaching you about the isosceles triangle, would you expect me to become an isosceles triangle? Right? So this was his way of saying, you know, I, I remember one of my teachers in the early days said, said that secular philosophy is like this arrow that might be very logical and sound very good, but it's an arrow saying, okay, go that way. I'm staying here, even though I'm the one who came up with the philosophy, I'm not going to live it. Because living it, as we said, is taking it from the head, bringing it down into the heart, which I mentioned last week, the Katsuka Rebbe said that the head and the heart is as far from each other as the heaven and the earth. And that's why we say we have to put these words, right, on your heart, because very difficult to get, even though we know it, to get it to sink in to our hearts and make us change, make us live it, make us integrate it. I thought of a good story. I'm trying. Oh, this is a really funny story, but I, I, I got to tell it to you here. So there was a woman in Toronto, an older woman, and she became Balchuva older in her life. And anyway, she used to go to a very popular um, Chumashir with a very, very very esteemed teacher in Toronto, PhDs, written books, and also just gives a very intense class that is very academically challenging. She can spend, I've been in her class, she could spend a month on one pasuk in the Torah. So a lot of the women who attend are not religious women, but they love the academic exercise of the class. And they've been going for like 20 years probably. Anyway, she told me a story that they always would go out for lunch after this class. So this woman who had become a Balchuva slowly through these classes and everything else, they were sitting around talking and she was very excited and exuberant. And she was with her friends. Some of them were professors at University of Toronto. Others were, you know, doctor's wives, very much um, developed academically in their own right. And she was getting very excited about the class they just heard together. And they all of a sudden turned to her, all of them together. They said, Marsha, you don't actually believe that the Torah is true, do you? 
And she said she was so shocked, but she realized that she changed and they were still seeing this as purely mental gymnastics. We love the teacher. We love the, the topic. We love the depth of it. We love, this is better than crossword puzzles. It's going to keep our brains really limber, right? But they were like, you actually believe this stuff? What are you? Are you a simpleton? Are you? What happened to you? You know, you drank the Kool-Aid, as they like to say, about the J people, women who go on the JWRP and come back excited about their Yiddish guy. Oh, she drank the Kool-Aid. She drank the Kool-Aid. Anyway, so just a little aside there. Yes, the Torah is supposed to be real. We said it's supposed to be Hayom. It's supposed to be for today, not antiquated, not for our grandparents, not for our great Bobbies and Zadies, but relevant right now. Humanity never changes. Human beings never change. Uh, the same taivas, the same desires, the same negatives, the same positives. They've been with us since Adam and Chava, since the Garden of Eden. And only a God could write a book that's good for human beings from the beginning of time till the end of time. Because if Hashem created us, who knows us better than he does, Right? We know our children better than anybody else, right? We saw them from birth all the way up. They can fool everybody else, or we'd like them to, right? But we really know them. So too, Lahavdil, Hashem knows us, and he gave us, Baruch Hashem, instructions for how to live the best possible life and how to connect to him while we're still in a physical body. Okay. Because of Torah study, we know that Jews have been the most literate people throughout all of history. Throughout every period of history, the Jews always knew how to read and write because Torah was what we studied. Torah was what we learned. When a man came home from work, whatever it was, he didn't go bowling. He didn't go to the Granite Club. He didn't go hang out and do some, you know. He was in the base medrash, the simplest Jew right, with his chavrusa, sitting and learning Rashi, is that if that's all that he was up to. And this is what Jewish men did always throughout the ages. So when you sit at home, which is usually at night, when you go on the way, which is usually in the morning, you have to love Hashem everywhere you go. And what you talk about shows what's important to you. So the more you talk about it, the dibartabam, right, the more you are excited about it and preoccupied with it, the more it shows those around you what, that it's your primary occupation, it's your primary obsession, it's your primary infatuation to know wisdom, to learn how to live more, more in line with what Hashem wants and develop the essence of yourself, which is hidden even to us, but is able to flourish when we follow the recipe, when we follow the instructions of this very complicated machine, which is not only us who are a microcosm of the world, but of course, we are, we are an, a mirror image of the complexity of the world outside of us, right? We talked about this in our elements class, Olam Gadol and Olam Katan, that we are a microcosm. So Hashem gave us the key 
to how to make this machine operate in the most incredible way. You know, Plato tried with Plato's Republic. There are people that have tried throughout the ages to create the most ideal society, but only a God could create an ideal society that's ideal for everyone, every class system, every level of intelligence, where justice is always justice, no matter which time period you live in, no matter what the fashion of the day is. You know, we live in times where bris mila is fashionable and everybody wants to do it, even the goyim, because it's good for your health, it's medically good. And then we live through times, oh, that's barbaric. That's outrageous. Those Jews are animals. They do this to their children, right? And you have to convince Jews to do it because they're living in the time when it's not fashionable. It's barbaric. So we Jews have to understand that always, always the Torah is relevant. And for us, it's our life, right? It's like a tree of life that you have to hold on tight. Hold on tight. So the next section says, And of course, here we're talking about tefillin. Bind them as a sign upon your arm and let them be tefillin between your eyes. And by the way, this is one of the ramazim, one of the hints to the fact that you could never understand the written Torah, Torah Shabichsav, unless you have an oral Torah. You know, when they want to prove to people who don't know, that the Torah is divine. One of the examples that they'll give is it says in the written Torah that you should wear tefillin, but nowhere in the written Torah does it tell you what they are. It says, put them on your eyes and put them on your, you know, on your, put it on your, between your eyes, put it on your arm. It doesn't tell you which arm. It doesn't tell you where. It doesn't tell you what it looks like. It doesn't tell you anything. It's only with the oral tradition, which explains it's got to be this black box. It's got to be made out of leather. It has to be, the, the straps have to be this wide. It has to have the Shema inside of it, right? This is how you put it on. This is just one example. The same thing with milk and meat, right? We know in the Torah, it just says, don't dip a kid in its mother's milk. And from that, all the laws of Kashrut are derived. So if a person only has the written Torah and they don't believe in the oral Torah, which we have Jews like that, right? The Karaites that are still, there's a, still a few of them around today and others like the Sadducees, which were like, or sorry, the Essenes, which were like the reformed Jews during temple times when Jesus lived, right? There were the Essenes who did not believe in the oral tradition. So they would sit in the dark on Shabbos. They wouldn't light a fire because they took everything literally. But that's a different class. Okay, so these tefillin, I just want to read to you from Rabbi Lamb's book, something beautiful. They say it could fill up volumes and volumes of books just to understand what they are and what they're meant to do. But let me read you this from Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch a 19th century rabbi and thinker. So when you put those tefillin on your head and on your arm opposite your heart, the idea is, again, another example of the fact of Ol Malchut you're saying to God, I am consecrating myself every morning in love. And if you read it in the, in the prayer, you know, it, it, it sounds a lot like a 
husband and wife. I'm betrothing myself to you in love. I'm dedicating not only my mind, right? And the tefillin go right there where your brain is. I guess maybe it's the smartest part of your brain. Who knows? The frontal cortex, right? We don't put them on the back where our reptilian mind is, right? We put them on the frontal cortex, that highest place of man's mind. And on my arm opposite my heart, because I'm concentrating my head and my emotions, my heart, my greatest love is you, Hashem, because after all, you give me everything I have, my children, my parents. So how can I not love more the source of all that I love? You are the source of everything that I love in my life. So who should I love most? Right? What greater pleasure could they be than loving the source of all the good that's in my life? All the blessings that you give come from you. But listen to what Rabbi Hirsch says. The mind which you dedicate to God through the tefillin cannot become the abode of lies, deceit, cunning, and malice. The heart which you sanctify to God through the tefillin cannot shrivel into self-seeking or become debased with pleasure-seeking. It must open up to an all-embracing love and dedicate itself in purity to the temple of the all-holy. And finally, the hand, which is also my action, right? So you have head, heart, and the hand, which the tefillin gets tied around, right? Human beings are the only animals, I think, except for monkeys that have a thumb that works the way it does. And the ability to create with their hands like no other mammal, if you like. Another aspect of the greatness of a human being, being on top of the entire system of creation, being the king of it all, right? So he says, the hand which you have sanctified through the tefillin as an instrument for serving God in your actions, can you stretch it out in treachery to the happiness and peace of a brother? So the tefillin are a sign of love and a reflection of our love for God and a reminder to nourish that love evermore. Hand and head, body and soul are both dedicated to the love of the one creator. Okay, so that's the tefillin. And I came across uh, an idea which I never heard before. I think it was in Rabbi Lamb's book that for women, because women do not put on tefillin, that for women, the closest thing to tefillin is mikvah. Because tefillin is all immersive, right? It's immersing your mind, your heart, and your soul. Uh, sorry, and your action. And for a woman, immersing in a mikvah is the most sort of all-encompassing mitzvah, right? Where everything is involved, your whole body. And anyway, just interesting idea. Um, so put them as a sign upon your arm and write them. You should write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. So, of course, here we're talking about the mezuzah. And on the mezuzah, typically, there's a shin, a letter shin on it, right? And that shin stands for one of the names of God, which is shakai, shin, shin. Shin Dalad Yud. And it's actually an acronym for the words Shamor Dilatot Yisrael. 
the protector of the doors of Israel. That, and actually I was just telling my daughter-in-law, you know, we have a minhag, a custom to put our hands on the mezuzah and to kiss it, right? But I actually read that there's no source for kissing it. So, but there is a source to just put your hand on it as you walk through. Some schmaltzy Jew decided we should also kiss it. But whatever, anyway, just an interesting piece of tidbit, which doesn't mean to say that you can't kiss it if you want to. Go ahead and kiss it. Go ahead and, and, and take that on as a new little mitzvah that you're going to notice once a month, you know, once a day, once a week, the mezuzah as you walk through and say, thank you, Hashem, for protecting me. Thank you, Hashem, for being with me. Right? Right? Make that your new mitzvah because it's not so hard, but you'd be amazed at how easy it is to walk back in and out and in and out and in and out and never kiss the mezuzah. Now, I happen to have a neighbor across the street, I think I've mentioned, who always kisses his mezuzah. It doesn't matter how many bags he has in his hands. He puts them down. It doesn't matter how cold it is. I watch him. I'm like waiting to catch him. I'm waiting to catch him. And I think his kids do it too, because they just, you know, he, he does it. And it's just as he's going in, he just, just, he always gets it at the last moment, just when I think I'm going to be able to say, ah, you missed it. <laughs> he gets it. Anyway, so it's a beautiful thing to do. So again, the idea of the mezuzah, and I'll tell you a cute little story. It's a story in the Gemara about Uncleus. Now, Uncleus was one of the greatest commentators on the Torah. He, he um, translated a lot of the words. And he's on every page of the Gemara, on the side of the Gemara. And he was a convert. He was the, son, he was the nephew of the Roman emperor at the time that Rome was in its, you know, height. And this, nephew, this uh, emperor heard that his nephew had converted to Judaism. And he was very, very enraged by it. And he sent a whole bunch of Roman soldiers to go and bring him to him. Anyway, the first group of soldiers went to Uncleus and he sat them down and he had a whole discussion with them about the meaning of life. And they all ended up converting. Okay. So nobody comes back. And the Roman emperor sends a second group of soldiers to go get, to get him. And it happens again that you know, they don't return or they return, but they're, they've all become converted, right? So finally, he sends this last group to go and arrest him. And he tells this last group of officers, they were commanded that they're not to talk to him, nor he to them, okay? Anyway, as they're carrying him out of his home, they pass the mezuzah. And of course, he picks up his hand to touch it. And of course, they, they see it and they notice it. And he explains to them, he says, you know, every mortal king lives inside a building. He lives in his castle, in his palace, right? And he has soldiers all around guarding him from the outside. He said, but we, we live inside and we have Hashem, who's our king, He's outside. He protects us from the outside. Anyway, they were so taken by this that this third group also converted. Okay, So he managed to make a lot of Jews in that month or whatever, until they finally, uh, whatever, gave up on him. 
Okay, so we have some time. We're going to start with the next section of the Shema. Okay. And again, we go back to the idea of listening. Each of the sections has a different theme. We're going to see that even though there's a lot of repetition in the second one, there are some differences. And we're going to say that the main theme of this uh, second paragraph is that of reward and punishment. That it'll be good for you if you do it, and it won't be so great if you don't. Okay? Everything being equal. And um, I want to read to you, actually, it's interesting because my son told me that that was the Dafyomi this week. It was about listening, and it was about the ears. And it was actually part of Rabbi Victor Miller, who puts out a little partial thing every week. And this week it was called Career of Listening. Or maybe that's what it's always called. And number one was dedicating the ear, paying for the ear, and opening your ears. And it's based on a pasuk in this week's Parsha, last week's Parsha, Tetzaveh. It says, you should take the blood and put it on the cartilage of Aaron's right ear and on the right ears of his sons. So ears play a role in um, the Torah. The most famous is the slave, right? That gets his ear pierced, right? If he doesn't want to go to his freedom. And Rashi says there, the slave who was at Mount Sinai, we're talking about a Jewish slave who heard the words of Torah and he doesn't want to be liberated, needs to be reminded that he should want to be liberated because you can only do a certain amount of mitzvahs when you're a, when you're a slave, as a Jewish slave. And you can do more when you're not. So what's wrong with him that he doesn't want to be liberated? That he doesn't want to live his life as a full Jew? So the ear that heard at Mount Sinai needs to be punctured as a sort of sign, as a reminder. Hey, what's wrong with you? You should want to live your life as a full Jew. But anyway, just a little bit from Rabbi Victor Miller, because he's so good. Well, Rabbi Victor Miller is famous for making you appreciate the minutest parts of your body, right? He can write pages on your fingernails. And he's really somebody who understands, like the Rambam, that the more you learn about the workings of the body, the more joy you can walk around with in your day, realizing how rich you really are. Just, a, you know, just an interesting idea, the word ashir in Hebrew, which is written ayin shin yud resh, rich, wealth. It says, stands for enayim, shenayim, that you have your eyes, shenayim, your teeth, yadayim, and raglayim. That, that that's a wealthy person. If you would wake up every morning realizing how fortunate you are, and of course, many stories about people who are missing. He talks about a guy in New Manhattan who was missing one ear, who always took a picture of himself, obviously profiled, right? But what he would have given to have that ear, just aesthetically speaking. I don't know if the ear actually worked or didn't work. But anyway, just a little bit that he says about ears. He says, um, Rabbeinu Yona explains that, that there, that the ears, the ability to hear is one of the greatest gifts that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave us. 
You know, we're accustomed to thinking that this is how it's supposed to be. We were born with ears and will one day die with ears. They're always functioning and therefore we don't think about it at all. Many people might go their whole lives without thanking Hashem once for their ears. But actually, the ears are a great form of happiness. It's fun to be able to hear sounds. Hearing is an important part of our existence. Uh, we live by means of hearing. It's our lifeblood. Without it, a man is missing so much fun, so much of life, that it's almost as if he was dead. It's a terrible tragedy to not be able to hear. And then he goes on and speaks about the fact that our hearing should primarily be for, for listening to words of wisdom and using our sense of hearing to make ourselves into greater people, to connect to Hashem, and to know what it is that we're supposed to do. He says, imagine that there are two funnels in the sides of your head into which you can pour important essential elements that will mold your personality. You wouldn't just pour anything in. The purpose of the ears is that they should gather all the necessary information which HaKadosh Baruch Hu is sending to you. And by means of using the ears for that purpose, we are fulfilling their function in life. Hine Shemoa Mizevach Behold, listening is better than giving an offering. To pay attention is greater than the fat of offerings of oxen. Not that we know what that means. But the idea is, is that the ear is really an incredible opening if we use them properly, right? To becoming wiser and greater. And of course, ultimately knowing what it is that Hashem wants us to do in this world, fulfilling our mission in this world. And of course, uh, you know, when we learn about Shmira Selashim, we learn that it's no coincidence that this finger of our hand fits perfectly, is tapered perfectly to plug up our ears when we're hearing something we don't want to hear. And even the lobes of the ears, which actually have a function, I never knew that, but they actually uh, let sound reverberate off of them so that we can hear better. They're not, not just there for earrings. I, I, they have a function, but the other function they have, as every child learns in school, is if somebody's saying something that you don't want to hear, you just fold up your earlobe and stick it in, and you won't have to hear any of this, right? So we know that there's a mitzvah not to speak Lashon Hara, but there's an even harder mitzvah not to accept, once you've heard it, that it's true. And that's a whole nother shear in itself. How do you not accept something when you've just heard it? You know, you, you didn't even meet the person yet and somebody told you something negative about them. And we all know that when you finally meet them, the first thing you're thinking of in your mind is, oh, I know all about you. <laughs> and the poor person doesn't get a chance. Can you imagine if somebody did that to you? And yet we have a mitzvah not to accept Lashon Hara, not to believe it. Such a difficult thing to do when you've heard it, when it's come. And that's the power of hearing, right? That, that, that it goes right into your brain. And, and it's very, very powerful. So the second paragraph begins, the haya im shamoa tishma'u. It's like a double lasham about hearing, right? And it will be that if you continuously listen, right? And we said that the word listen 
And active listening is so important for a relationship. And listening means to understand, it means to obey, it means to have clarity, it means to, um, well, there's other, there's other um, synonyms, but I can't think of more right now, and I can't find my page that has some of them on it. But anyway, the idea here again is that we are a religion of listening, right? You heard what God said at Mount Sinai. And, and hearing is even deeper than seeing because sight only goes, your sight only works for as far as your eyes can see, but your hearing is boundless, right? It's beyond sight. It's okay. So God is saying here, it will be that if you listen very closely with a great attention, to my mitzvos, asher anochim hayom, which I'm commanding to you. And now we have plural. So one of the big differences between the first paragraph and the second is God is now talking to us as an entire people. In the first paragraph, it was ve'ahafta es Hashem You, you the person, you need to love me with all your heart and all your soul and be giving up be willing to give up your life for me and all of your material stuff. You need to dedicate it all to me. But here in the second paragraph, we're going to see that a lot of the words that are the same are all written now in the third person. And they're all plural. They're speaking to the entire nation. And that's why there are going to be some differences between what God says to you personally and what God says as a people. Other words for to hear and listen, to pay attention, to internalize, to respond. And the idea of it being in the plural is because no one person can do all the mitzvos alone, right? We are a team. We are one person and one body, one soul. You need every single Jew on board, right? If every single Jew, as they like to say in more esoteric Judaism, every single Jew is a letter of the Alephbet. If one letter in the Torah is missing, the Torah is no longer kosher. It's puzzle. You can't read from it, right? Even if it's got some kind of break in it or a line in it or some kind of typo. Every single letter has to be there. So too, 600,000 Jews, 3 million men, women, and children were at Mount Sinai. We feel that if we really feel and think like Jews, every single Jew is necessary. Every Jew that falls away from Judaism is a huge loss, right? And this is why people who dedicate their lives to Kiruv, to outreach, really believe that if we don't have everybody or with everybody who, so to speak, spiritually dies, it's as big a tragedy as the Holocaust. Rav Noah Weinberg used to say, if you saw somebody reaching their hand out from a train or from the fires of Auschwitz, and you could have put your hand out and pulled them over and saved them, who wouldn't do that? And he says, we're living in a time period which is no less and I use the word lightly, what he called a spiritual holocaust. And 
if you can do something or teach something or tell a Jew or behave in a way that makes another Jew want to come closer to Judaism, then you're saving their lives, right? And he also used to say, he, before he died, he took all of his Kiruv rabbis to, on a trip to, to Auschwitz. And one of the most powerful things he said, he said, if one person can kill 6 million people, 6 million Jews, and can figure out how to do that, then one person can save 6 million Jews. And that's what he saw as his responsibility. And Rav Noach, if you read his book, his biography, my husband said at the end, he said, it's so sad at the end because he really saw himself as a failure. Even though he built Asha Torahs all over the world and brought so many people back to Torah. And like they say about him and his wife, Rebetzin they're gonna to go to heaven and there's gonna be so many children and grandchildren, all the children and grandchildren of the people that they brought back to Torah, who are all going to come and call them, you know, Ima and Abba. And they're all their children. They created them through teaching them Torah, right? We said earlier that you have to stand up. If your Rebbe or your parent comes in the room, you stand up for your Rebbe first because he gave you Olam Haba. But Reb Noah saw himself as a failure at the end of the book because he'd failed in not bringing back every single Jew to Torah. And anything less than that for him, and that's, but those are great people, right? Those are people who are enormously, gigantically great, right? So, so here we have it in the plural because it takes every Jew. And we know that the 613 mitzvos are mitzvot, many of which depend only on being able to, on, on, you can only do them when you're living in Israel. For example, this year we have Shemitah in Israel. So there are farmers who are leaving their land fall, lying fallow, right? And not working and following the dictates of the Torah with the promise that God says, don't worry, I'm going to, you know, give you lots more than what you gave up. If you follow this law, there are other mitzvahs we know that are done only by Kohanim, Leviim, you know, and mitzvahs that are done by men and not by women. But all together, we are, as a team, doing the mitzvah. So that's why it's in the plural here, okay? So you have in the plural, but uh, but you still have a shem in the singular, which I am commanding to you, right? That personal relationship, God is saying, I, Anochi. Mitzavah, I'm I'm the one telling you to do this, right? Hayom, what do you have to do? Ahava es Hashem alokechem. You have to love Hashem. Ula avdo bechol and you have to serve Him again with all your hearts, right? The yetsar tov and the yetsar hara. Uvechol nafshechem, and with all your soul, you have to be willing to give up your life the way Yitzchak Avinu was willing to give up his life on the Akeda. Right? Again, only in specific situations. But it doesn't say anywhere, the home odecha, right? It doesn't say anything about our possessions or our wealth here. You know, there's a reason for that. Because not everybody's going to be able to sacrifice physical well being for living a life of Torah. It's only those unique few who dedicate their lives to Torah and are willing to live with a lot less, as we spoke about last week, right? 
So Hashem doesn't have in the Shema where he's talking to everybody this idea that you've got to give it all up for God. Because he understands that there's only certain people who will be able to mamish live a life with less materially because they want to devote themselves. You know, so to speak, it was like in every Italian family, one kid was going to be the priest, right? You always had the kid who was going to be the priest, right? Lahavdil, as we say, in Jewish families, women light the candles and they daven that their sons should become Torah scholars, right? It's a great yichus for your daughter to marry a Torah scholar, a rich man's daughter to marry a Torah scholar and to be able to support them. Now today, that's, this has become more in fashion Torah scholars actually in pre-war Europe were not really looked up to very highly in the general mass of Jews who were assimilating and getting further and further away, even before the Holocaust, from Orthodox Judaism. We know that the reform movement was founded in Germany, I believe, and there was a lot of taiva from our Wednesday class to study the great minds of the time, the great philosophers, Kierkegaard, Nietzsche, and others, Schopenhauer, right? And they said that there were in yeshivas, you could actually see boys who under the shtender, right? They'd have their gemaras open, but under the shtender, they had this incredible Yetzer Hara to read the intellectual and philosophical writings of these great minds of the time. You know, there's uh, the famous Moses Mendelssohn who went off, who was an Orthodox Jew who went off and others who were part of the Haskalah of the enlightenment. But interestingly, the great Yetzir Hara of that time was an intellectual Yetzir Hara. Today, we live in a generation, just to show the difference between us and them, the Yetzirah of today is decadence, right? How much pleasure can I get? It's pleasure that's going to take me away from being an Orthodox Jew. I can't control myself on Shabbos. I have to use my phone because it gives me so much pleasure to be texting or whatever I'm doing. Right, I get that dopamine high. I get that sense of, you know, being in the in the know. If I'm not there, like I'll disappear. Nobody will remember me. Whatever. We're on a much lower level. And these are the Yetzirharas of today. But then the Yetzirhara was intellectual. Hey, hold on. I have to know what time it is. You know me. Wow, we've only got a minute. Okay, so. Um, so again, only very special people are going to devote themselves to the Torah and learning it and living it in a very high way. And these are the priests of the Jewish people, right? The, and yet we, we daven for this for all of our children because that is considered the highest type of life to live if you can do it, right? Okay, I'm not going to go on. I'm going to let you go.
Um, let's see where we stop. So that's why there's nothing about with all your possessions in the second paragraph. So that's one of the one of the differences. Okay. And when we go on next week, we're going to talk about how very clearly it talks about reward and punishment, because it says if you do this, and I'll just read it to you in English, then I'm going to provide rain for your land in its proper time, the early and late rains that you may gather in your grain, your wine and your oil. I will provide grass in your field for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. So basically, Hashem is promising here that if you live this life of Torah, if you make it the central thing, I'm going to take good care of you. I'm going to give you all the gashmias, all the materialism that you'll need. I'm going to make you very successful so that you won't have to worry about, like the Jews in the desert with the manna that fell, right? that were living this very spiritual life. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to do anything. God was saying to them, listen, I'm, this is your training program to be spiritual. I'm going to take care of everything so that you can devote your life to sitting and learning Torah, to, to, to pursuing wisdom. Because we all know when we're preoccupied with making a living, we don't have enough. We can't put bread on the table. Well, then we can't think of anything else. Unfortunately, today we have way more than we need, right? But we are always caught in this trap of thinking we need more and more and more. We can't get off the treadmill to realize that Hashem gave us the rain. He gave us the grass. He gave us all the material success. Now, what are you supposed to be doing? You have this time that you can sit and devote yourself to, to evolving as a Jew and bringing more Torah into the world. Okay, anyway, we'll leave with that and uh, have a wonderful week and I hope to see you on Wednesday. And if you have any questions, you can send them to me. Thanks for joining me in Cleveland. Okay, thank you. Okay. Thank you so much. It was wonderful, as always. Good to see you all. Take care.